Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, there's a couple of seats on the on the floor. If, uh, there's three. If anybody wants to come on up, one, two here, one here. You're welcome to to move up. Oh yeah, there are listening devices. Anybody who would like a listening device? Okay. Uh, also, by the way, this. Um, I was just uh, mentioning to somebody who hadn't realized the talks here are recorded each week. Um, and if you go to dharmaseed.org um, and uh, go under my name, James Barras, um, it'll be recorded. And this this will be recorded too. So if you, this evening, so if you um, want to share it with a friend, um, then let them know. Uh, oh, and one other thing before we get started, uh, we have another teacher here, Kevin Griffin. Why don't you uh, stand? And Kevin is leading a three-day non-residential uh, weekend this weekend at Spirit Rock on uh, suttas. What you're calling it? What sutta? Re- sutta recovery. Uh, that's uh, after you after you get through all the suttas here. Uh, Kevin will will hold your hand and uh, and uh, help you recover. Actually, maybe you won't have anything to recover from. It'll be you'll be it'll be emptiness will be uh, the result. Anyway, it's a, a real pleasure, as I said, uh, and and uh, honor to have uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, with us uh, tonight. I thought I'd. Just bring these in so you get a visual of what he spends his time doing. This is the Majima Nikaya, probably the, the, the reference that I use and most teachers use more than any as far as the 152 discourses of the Buddha that are um, um, treasures. Uh, Majima Nikaya, this is the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, the, and these are the Samyutta Nikaya, two volumes of the Samyutta Nikaya. And these are just part of what, uh, of his body of translations. Um, and uh, besides that, besides being an, an amazing scholar and uh, brilliant mind, uh, as I said, he's also... Um, a tremendously inspiring uh, activist. And I, I thought before we heard from him that I'd share with you um, an, a, an excerpt from an essay that people here have heard uh, me read from, this es- from his essay, uh, A Challenge to Buddhists, which I invite you to uh, look up online. Um, as I said to him earlier this week when we were together, it's... I. I I don't think a retreat goes by that I don't uh, read from this essay uh, because I think it's it's true. Because yeah. I think it's really important that people hear from the voice of, uh, a main voice of Theravadan Buddhism, how important it is to not just be um, scholars and meditators. So I'll just read a, a couple of paragraphs. If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense human suffering 
which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in the direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. Inspiring words by more than just a Buddhist scholar and meditator, but a call to action to make this a better world and put our practice uh, truly into a meaningful expression. Um, so it's a, a real pleasure and honor to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. And I just want to also say uh, that Kate uh, has, uh, and, and I have, are, are both really um, aligned in as well in how we can share the teachings in a way that inspires people to act. And Spirit Rock in the last, well, since November, uh, no, since January 20th, uh, since the inauguration, where we had 300 people that evening coming together and sitting. Uh, Spirit Rock has been really, um, uh, it's been wonderful to see their uh, their our commitment to supporting people expressing their their practice in a meaningful engaged way and and Kate uh has, and I have been working with Spirit Rock to support that happening and it's really a a delight to have you here anything you want to say before we get started I just want to hear from Bonte <laughs> So we thought what we'd do is uh, first have it more of a conversational evening, but, uh, and I have a few questions uh, to, to get things rolling, and then we can open it up, and maybe Kate has some uh, questions and comments as well, but we can open to, to everyone. Um, so in, this is in, like in the last, I've been aware in the last, 10 or 12 years or so, this mm. movement, you founded Buddhist Global Relief, and a after being uh, so focused on scholarship, no, and no. What, what, what prompted you, what was the impetus that, uh, that led for you to be such a voice for engagement? Okay, I think this probably goes back to my time in Sri Lanka, when... Okay, in 1984, I came to live with the elder German monk, Venerable Nyanapunika Tera, who is, he's the author of a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which was one of the most, in the 1960s, 1970s, was one of the most influential books. In fact, it, it exposed many of us for the first time to the practice of Satipatthana, or the mindfulness meditation. And I actually bought that book in 1967, <clears throat> when I first was becoming interested in meditation, and <clears throat> the copy I had didn't say anything about the author. It just had his name. <clears throat> and it had the address, you know, at the end of the preface, the Forest Hermitage Ceylon. That was the, the old name before it, the name was changed to Sri Lanka. And... I imagine that it was a Sri Lankan monk, a Sinhalese monk. Till later I found out that it was a German monk. And somehow by the strange working of unfolding of karma, I came to live with him <laughs> and to stay with him for the last ten and a half years of his life. When I came to stay with him, 1984, he was almost 83 years old. And then he continued to live on for another ten and a half years till his 
after his 93rd birthday. Anyway, he was also a very like profound scholar, also a very diligent meditator. <clears throat> but at the Forest Hermitage, we had a subscription to Time magazine. This was our uh, sort of access to news about the world. And we would read it. At first, we were sharing it together, but in the late 1980s, his vision began to deteriorate began to de- deteriorate to the point where he couldn't read anymore. So I would read the articles to him, and I saw that he had a very, very keen interest in world events. I mean, this is a, a man who's been a monk since 1936. <laughs> um, but he was interested in world events, you know, not from sort of the standpoint, like a worldly standpoint, like who's beating who in this election or that election, But when he would listen, as I would read, he would be listening from what I would call a platform of deep compassion and really being deeply moved by the events that that I'm reading to him taking place in the world. I remember particularly what stands out in my mind is, well, two things. One was when that conflict took place that very brutal conflict in Rwanda, I think it was 1993, where the Tutsis and the Hutus were killing each other. Hundreds of thousands of people died, and I was reading to him about, reading the article to him about that, and he was almost in tears listening to it. And then another thing was an article about what was taking place in Burma. This would have been, I think, in the late 1980s because he had spent some time in Burma and he had a very deep love for Burma and the Burmese people. And when I read about how the government was conscripting people without any pay, without conscripting them and forcing them to work long, long hours to construct the new capital city to replace Yangon as the capital city. And then when I was reading that to him, again, he was almost in tears. And this sort of awakened in me what I call a latent sense of social conscience. Okay, but still, you know, in Sri Lanka, I had very little access to news about the world. And I didn't really have internet access in Sri Lanka. I would have, <clears throat> because in the place where I was living, I continued to live on in the forest hermitage after Venerable Nyanopanika passed away. So I continued to live on he passed away in 1994. I continued to stay on there till 2001, 2002. And we didn't have internet access there. To, get, to send emails, I would have to go to the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy, of which I was the editor, and then check emails and send them out quickly. But I came back to the U.S. in 2002, and then through the internet I could find out much more about what's going on in the world and I saw you know, some very disturbing trends, particularly after the United, what really disturbed me was after the United States got involved in the wars in the Middle East. Um, of course, the destruction of the World Trade Center was a great tragedy, but I realized that it was not necessary for the U.S. to launch a war in Afghanistan. And then I could see that the whole background to the war in Iraq was just constructed on lies. And yet, I would read how thousands of innocent people are being killed, all based on, you know, on falsehoods, on deception. And so that stirred up deeply in my heart. And then I wrote 2007, this Buddha Dharma magazine, they asked me to write what they call a commentary essay. And so I was reflecting on my, the things that I've been reading and reflecting upon, and then I decided to write this essay. And I didn't give it the title. I just called it Commentary. <laughs> and then they gave it the title, which the title gives it a more stronger dramatic punch. Okay, then the essay was published, I think it was the summer or the autumn issue of Buddha Dharma Magazine, 2007. And I didn't show it to any of my students. (laughs) But 
some of them subscribed to the magazine and read it, and I found out that they were speaking with each other, and then they came to me and said, you've given us a challenge, we have to do something to meet that challenge. And then we started to have some initial discussions, and somehow one thing led to another, and then we decided to form a Buddhist relief organization. And initially we set a very broad agenda because none of us were really very skilled or experienced in establishing an organization like this. So we set the broad agenda was to provide relief to people around the world who are afflicted with natural disasters, social oppression, and... What? Wait, that came a little later. Okay. Natural disaster, social oppression, and overwhelming needs, something like that. But within a short time, we realized that that was just too broad a mission. (laughs) And so we had to narrow it down to something more specific. And one thing that I had witnessed myself during my time in Asia, especially in certain periods when I was in Sri Lanka and also when I was in India, is people suffering from food shortages. And so then I I made the suggestion, why don't we focus upon the problem of chronic hunger and malnutrition? And we looked into the internet and the figures that we saw were rather shocking, that like close to a billion people around the world, like 900 million people at that time suffering from food insecurity, from food shortages and food insecurity, and six million people around the world every year die from hunger, from hunger, malnutrition, and illnesses due to malnutrition, and half of them children. And so these were rather shocking figures. And so we set up the mission of addressing this problem of chronic hunger and, mal- and malnutrition. And we had a very, to our great fortune, James said that I'm the one who's doing constant work for B- Buddhist Global Relief. Actually, I'm the one who gives maybe the overall vision and ideas, but the one who's really been extremely dynamic. You've met her the last time. No, 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 no. It's Kim Behan, a short woman who, she had been in the telecom communications industry. She resigned from her job and she took over the position of executive director of Buddhist Global Relief completely on a volunteer basis. And she threw all of her energy and thoughtfulness into the organization. And so we started out 2008 with three projects and a budget of $20,000. Now, over the years, we've been gradually growing, 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 till the last couple of years, we have usually 25 to 30 projects that we sponsor for a budget like $500,000. Yeah, so it's been developed very, very successfully. And initially, we thought that to deal with global hunger, The way to do it is to sponsor projects and programs that provide direct food aid. But then as we started to look into the problem of global hunger, malnutrition, poverty, we realized it's necessary to deal with the underlying roots of it. And one particular underlying root, or maybe two, that we found is in many traditional cultures, the subordinate status of girls and of women. And so we realized to tackle the problem of poverty and hunger at the root level, two of the most effective strategies, one is to promote the education of poor girls, and the second is to provide women with the opportunities to start what we call right livelihood projects to support their families. And so one of my favorite programs that we sponsor, that we support, is in Cambodia. We have a partner organization, which is also U.S.-based, called Lotus Outreach. 
And they have this program in Cambodia. It's called GATE, which is an acronym standing for Girls Access to Education. So the way this program works through the partnership with BGR and Lotus Outreach, we sponsor a food program directed to the families of the girls that the families will get a monthly supply of rice on condition that they allow these girls to remain in school, that they don't force them to drop out and start working. And so as a result of this, many of these girls have gone through high school and about a hundred of them. And these are girls coming from the poorest stratum of an extremely poor country like Cambodia. About a hundred of these girls are now in college and university. Yes, studying to be doctors, scientists, teachers. Yeah, so maybe that's a <laughs> long, long answer to your so, question. That um, just so so moving to see once you get started, yeah. uh, the, it, it feels like there's a, a momentum that just feels yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, any, any before I, I had another question, but any anything uh, it occurs to me if you could say something about the. Um, the positive benefits, the joy that comes. Yeah, yeah. It, it gives a, a, a great, great feeling of joy. Uh, and what I do sometimes in my, in, my, in my meditation, actually, is to think about these different projects and how they're transforming the lives of people, people who would you know, otherwise just face a constant struggle just to survive from day to day. And now through this work of BGR, just like these channels and doors have opened up whereby they can live you know, very decent lives and have great opportunities. And we always try to encourage them. We don't restrict the projects to Buddhist countries or to Buddhist peoples. We, the projects are launched to people all over the world. Um, wherever we get connections. And another little, another little project that I'll mention, I think it goes back about two years ago, we got a letter or an email from an organization in Cameroon. It's a small country in West Africa, saying that they had somehow read about Buddhist global relief, and they spoke about how the, it, in that country the school children are struggling with just to remain in school with hunger. And if we could provide help to provide, to sponsor a program to provide a midday meal to the children in the school, and then we looked into the organization and we decided it would be a worthy project to support. And so we've been doing this project for the last two years. And there's a photograph. If, if you go to our website or blog and you search for Cameroon, you'll see this photograph of these children holding up a sign which says, Thank you, Buddhist Global Relief and Sensudar. Sensudar is our partner organization in Cameroon for the delicious meals you provide every day. You know, I look at the statistics for Cameroon. About half the population is Christian. The other half, or less than, little less than half, is Islam, Muslim. And probably the, popula- the Buddhist population in Cameroon <laughs> is maybe zero. <laughs> But the children in the school are getting their their daily midday meal from a Buddhist organization. (laughs) And and just uh, just as you were saying, talking about how you reflect on it every day, it's that's one of the Buddha's um, um, suggested practices of of. Feeling the wholesomeness yeah. of your actions yeah. And, yeah. and to maintain and yeah. increase those wholesome states yeah. Yeah. by reflecting on, yeah. on your good works. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like that's part of your, your practice, right? Occasionally. There. I don't do it every day, but occasionally I do it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm in favor of just getting in touch with as much goodness as, as possible. So, uh, so I, I have one other question, and then maybe we'll, we'll open it up. Uh, so there's the joy. Yeah that comes from doing good works. And in this crazy world with 
greed, hatred, yeah. delusion, yeah. ignorance. Um, it's 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 uh it's not uh, it's not uncommon that one might feel a bit of frustration and anger and despair and outrage and all of those akusala unwholesome emotions as as is said and one uh, one discourse that uh, particularly strikes me that I know you're very familiar with that we sh- we we've looked at here is the is the simile of the saw, yeah. where the Buddha says if you if you he keeps on going if this happens to you and this happens to you this happens to you you know stay with loving kindness yeah. don't don't have anger as the expression in your heart. Even to the point if you are captured by some bandits and they are sawing off your leg, stay with the loving kindness and not with the anger. It's a pretty high bar. Uh, But uh, on on a realistic level, both with yourself and with with people who are really wanting to make this a better world and feel so discouraged and frustrated and outraged and angry. How do you personally work with that, if that ever arises in your mind and and heart, and and how would you encourage people to to work with that? You just put your arm under there. Yeah, first I... Oops, that's it, okay. I would <clears throat> I would make a distinction between anger as an unwholesome state and what I would call moral outrage. So this is not moral outrage is not a mental condition where you are overcome by anger to the point where you lose self-control, but rather when it's you witness how say people in power and privilege are using their power and privilege to open and decimate other people, to deceive them, to promote and push through policies that are detrimental to the well-being of people, then one uses that as a way to arouse what I call a strong moral force of resistance and opposition in one's mind and a strong commitment to take action in whatever way one can to oppose those kinds of detrimental policies and instead to stand up to defend those who are being oppressed or marginalized or um, plunged into unfortunate situations and instead to, to advocate strongly for transformative, for wholesome and transformative policies. So... Yeah, I, I coined an expression for this. I call it conscientious compassion. Mm-hmm. So it's not just compassion as an inner spiritual state or mental state, but it's a kind of compassion which rises up and activates the sense of conscience so one feels that it's not enough just for me to witness this and to extend benef- benevolent thoughts, but I must do something to prevent harm and to promote what is truly good and beneficial. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, conscientious compassion and moral outrage. Yeah. And then, when anger does arise, yeah. if if it does, yeah. Yeah. how how to how would you suggest people work with it yeah. um, who who aren't quite in touch with the moral outrage yeah. part, but yeah. saying, "What's going on with these yeah. guys?" and yeah, this is where the, the mindfulness and the meditation comes in. When the anger arises, and it's sort of threatening to overthrow the mind and to force one to, force one to lose self-control, then one brings in the mindfulness and the contemplation, or the mindfulness in order to contemplate that anger and sort of let it arise, watch it, let it bubble through the mind, and realize that what underlies that anger is, in this case, a wholesome motivation. Mm -hmm. It's not that you are 
angry with if you have a kid because he's going out at night and you want him to stay home, or angry with your wife because she went out and bought some new dresses. <laughs> so it's a, or angry with the weather because it's snowing when you were planning to fly back to New York. <laughs> And then you fell into James' trap. (laughs) No, so this is anger, which is because you see that there are some people, again, the powerful people in positions of privilege who are taking advantage of their position to, um, to exploit and harm others. And so you realize that this is Beneath the anger is a wholesome motivation, but that the, the anger itself is harmful to oneself, possibly harmful to others, and it doesn't allow one to effectively fulfill one's aim. So let the anger sort of settle down and then transform it into this driving moral outrage, which it's a little misleading, the expression, because it suggests a state of rage, a loss of self-control. But this is rather, maybe the conscientious compassion is maybe a better expression in this case. Mm. But it's that force of conscience that pushes one into the arena of transformative action. So, so going underneath the anger to that place yeah. of caring, yeah. exactly, exactly, caring exactly. and compassion exactly. and 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 and, exactly. and love. Yeah. yeah. I'm just remembering yeah, exactly uh, love it. It uh, um, um, Michael Lerner, Rabbi Michael Lerner says that uh, cynics are frustrated idealists. Exactly. That yeah. there is that, yeah. but you can you can stay instead of going cynical. You can yeah. just yeah. use that yeah. that caring. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Um. I'm just thinking about just where we are in time in this country right right now. Yeah. Is it too low? Okay. And we have this crazy political system where we're made to choose one party over yeah, another yeah, as yeah. if either party fully represents yeah, this yeah. moral um, yeah. this moral choice of living. Yeah which I don't think either one does, and yet we're made to choose yeah, either yeah. one. Yeah. And so there's this huge divide where I feel like right now uh, we're seeing it on a national level where we're, we're truly in either one of those camps, or that's kind of the perception of it. Mm. And, um, and depending on which one you're in, the mm. other... Yeah. is perhaps morally incorrect in some mm-hmm. way. And being uh, in a Buddhist community and being mm-hmm. in the Theravadan lineage and um, being part of the insight tradition through Spirit Rock and IMS, there's certainly a more liberal bent yeah. to yeah. Uh, those who are teaching and empower yeah. and yeah. leading these communities. And yet we're not all liberals or we're not um and i think we forget that especially here in a place like berkeley california and so what i'm seeing is a great divide even within our tradition among the the practitioners and a feeling of being um i'm hearing from from people who identify as more conservative or republican and even those who voted for trump who are in this tradition who are practicing in the same way and are starting to feel marginalized or ostracized. And this has more recently really been touching my heart. And, and so I've been really questioning how, how to best proceed as, um, as someone who wants to, Mm. uh, uh, practice in this way of non-harming and respond yeah, yeah, yeah. and also not to create more divide, especially yeah. within our tradition. How can yeah. we bring everybody together yeah, yeah. in this movement yeah, towards yeah. this, this wholesomeness? And I'm just, mm. so I'm wondering if, since this is recorded and will be listened by yeah, people yeah. all over the country, if there's something you could say in response to those who do 
feel like they're on the more conservative side or identify as Republican. Okay, I think not so much in terms of political parties, but in terms of what are the values to which we are committed as followers of Buddha Dharma, and then what are the kinds of policies that would best implement those values. Okay, so the kinds of values that I would consider fundamental would be, of course, the value of compassion, which means the wish to liberate or rescue those who are facing suffering, and particularly suffering in this country, say, discrimination based on race, religion, ethnicity, Um, the suffering due to hunger, lack of food insecurity, suffering due to lack of adequate medical care, lack of sufficient in the east and the north, um, lack of sufficient heating, for example, during the winters. Okay, so these are some of the kinds of policies that are to be addressed through compassion. Another value is justice, to ensure that there's a reasonable degree of economic and social justice. So, for example, on the political score, that everybody gets has the right to vote, and that voters are not being suppressed, and their votes are not being discounted. And then a third like major issue would be preserving a livable climate, a sustainable climate. So these are three basic fundamental issues that, as, that come out from our... With three basic values that come out from our commitment to the Buddha Dharma. Okay, then, based on these values, we look at the different policies being proposed by the different political parties. And we're not trying to choose one party over another or one candidate over another because we have a liking for that party, a liking for that candidate. But what kind of policies are, have a reasonable chance of implementing these values, of putting them into action? And who are the candidates that are best, that are behind those policies? You know, there could be, I have to say, you know, differences between liberal or progressive approaches to implementing these policies and conservative approaches. But what we have now, and I'm going to speak very frankly and candidly from the Republicans, that is not conservatism anymore. That is an extreme, cruel, vicious, destructive kind of This is a cruel and extreme and vicious type of extremism, which it's using sometimes glowing expressions like promoting the good of the American people, but we could see what the underlying agenda is. That there's a kind of spite and malice underlying all of those proposals. Like just somebody mentioned the budget, the proposed budget, which we have to say it's just a budget proposal coming from the White House. The actual budget is made up by Congress, which is not (laughs) exactly a ground for for relief either. (laughs) But cutting the Environmental Protection Agency 30%, um, cutting different kinds of welfare and social welfare programs, I don't remember the different percentages. Education is going to be slapped down badly. Um, Where are the big increases in spending going? Fighter jets, like we need more fighter jets. Military, building a wall between the southern border and Mexico. So can we say that, can somebody honestly say that those expenditures or a budget like that is an expression of compassion, kindness towards others, social and political, social and economic justice, looking after the welfare of the people? And, you know, there's a sutta, it's in <laughs> the one that's, that's, that I didn't translate, but this is the Diga Nikaya. The Diga Nikaya, 
I think it's Sutta number twenty. Whoops, Sutta number twenty-six, called the. Um, Chakavati, Chakavati, Chakavati Sihanada Sutta, the lion's roar on the wheel-turning king. So this is where the Buddha is sort of setting up a criterion of the ideal form of, of political administration, of rulership. And it's, of course, in the Buddha's time, it's framed or set in the framework of monarchy. So the ideal ruler, according to the Buddhist text, is what is called the wheel-turning king. And the king does not inherit that status of a wheel-turning king. He has to earn it. And once, and in order to earn that status of a wheel-turning king, he has to meet certain criteria. And one of those criteria is to ensure that there is no poverty within his realm. And then it happens that when a, one king, one man who becomes the king, fails to eliminate poverty, then he loses that status of being the wheel-turning king. And it's from poverty breaking out in his realm that all the other evils step by step erupt. You know, so this shows that in the, in, even though the Buddha doesn't develop systematic political thought, but from these kinds of passages we can infer that the primary responsibility of government is to ensure that everybody has a satisfactory standard of living, that there's no degrading poverty. Yeah, yeah. We can open it up, and, uh, yeah. Andrew. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, the this question of of uh, debating, you know, um, politics. It's, it's occurred to me that the debate is very often about how karma works or what what causes bring what effects yeah. so that some people will say that giving money to the poor yeah. harms them because it weakens their drive and so what we're going to do is we're going to you know we want them to learn to be more self-support or you know pull mm-hmm. themselves up and other people say no we need to help them to get to that point so it's it's not always clear. <laughs> I'm, you know, without knowing what's yeah. in the hearts of people who are making these yeah. proposals, yeah. it's not always clear what is the necessarily the moral yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, action because we don't know, know how cause and effect works yeah. in every case, right? Yeah. So that that's the place where I guess it it allows me to be a little bit more compassionate towards people I disagree with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know if you can say something about that. I mean, this is a kind of argument that one sometimes gets, that if you give people things like welfare, maybe this was one of the reasons that led to the elimination of the old welfare program, that they're not going to want to work, they'll just be content to live off the welfare. But I think from what my understanding is that most people want to work at meaningful types of employment in order to support themselves and their families. But, and there are situations where people are not able to find work, and that is the situation that we find ourselves in today, where there are, I don't know what the percentages are, but lots of people who can't find satisfactory work or who are working but at types of jobs which are not which don't correspond to their levels of education and their capabilities. Um, So I would say that it's necessary to have some kind of welfare to help people who are in the straits to deal with their life challenges till they're able to find satisfactory employment. And if they're not, then one still has to... This was a statement that Venerable Nyanaponika once made in a very different situation. He where we had like a choice of a kind action or a more stern, sterner type of action. He said, it's, in my opinion, it's always better to err on the side of compassion. 
and, and quite relevant to you, the point you just brought up, Nicholas Kristof, today he had, or it could have been yesterday, but I just saw it today, his column in the New York Times, it's Jesus speaks to Paul of Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> And for example, if I, let's see if I can remember it. Okay, Jesus says to Paul of Ryan, oh, no, no, Jesus and Paul of Ryan are standing together and there's a sick man who comes to Jesus and says, Master, please deliver me from my illness. And then Jesus says, rise up and go home, you are whole. Then Paul of Ryan says to Jesus, if you continue to act like that, you're going to spoil them. <laughs> you have to teach these people to take more responsibility for themselves. Thank you for being here. It's really quite amazing to have you here. Um, well, I was going to say, speaking of the New York Times, um, I read a very, very good piece by David Brooks, um, in the New York Times, it was probably 10 or 12 days after the inauguration. And what he's, and he is someone I, he, he's a conservative. He's someone yeah. I tend not to agree with it, but he's a very intelligent man. Yeah, yeah, I respect yeah. him. Okay. So he says, he said, this is not a Republican administration. Yeah. This is an ethnic nationalist administration. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which to me, just said it all. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, if you look deeply into the Republican Party and what the values were at one time yeah, yeah, and what yeah. some Republicans may still feel are their values, yeah. it's not what we're seeing. Yeah, that it's is not a, the yeah. people who are in office. It's not the yeah. people who are making the policies. Yeah, yeah. And that's what makes it so scary. Yeah, yeah. And it's not really a conservatism. Conservatism is based on well, the idea of like limited government, um, respect for civil liberties, things like that. Yeah. I'm a little bit curious. I'm a little bit curious about how uh, a little more um, about how the more conservative monks uh, are reacting to the way you functioning in the world. In particular, I know they're very opposed to having women, you know, you know be, get enlightened. And do they have? They're they what? Have, are the, are the more conservative monks in the Theravada tradition upset with you the way you're functioning with this, uh, with your with your actions? <laughs> I didn't say that very clearly. Sorry. I mean, some have. What's interesting is that those who have criticized me, at least in the cases where the criticism has come to to my knowledge, are Western or specifically American Theravada monks. But the ones that, I don't want to mention specific places, but I do have good relations with some, I'm very good relations with some of the American Theravada monks. But the Asian Theravada monks, particularly the ones from Sri Lanka, have been very, very active in social, you know, in social activities. And so they admire the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, thank you very much for all of your translations. I have yeah, about yeah. a foot and a half, I think, of, of your books uh, on my shelf. And, um, and, and read them and probably quote from them on a fairly regular basis, although I consider myself not a Buddhist. And I'm, mm. I'm curious, um, your thoughts about you know, the mindfulness movement or the whole movement of kind of... Uh, mm. you know, Seeping into uh, you know the mindfulness awareness and and awareness maybe of the principles uh, Dharma principles outside of a Buddhist context. Yeah, I yeah. work. I'm an engineer. I work with people that would have no interest in listening to me espouse Buddhism per se. Yeah. And yet I teach a mindfulness class and I talk with a lot of people about lots of principles yeah. that are Dharma principles. And I have yeah. you know some colleagues that um, are you know were Trump voters or at least sympathetic and climate yeah. deniers. 
yeah. even though they're engineers and, and highly intelligent. I'm curious about it, just your thoughts about, um, as, I, as I look at the political situation, not just for, as trying to lean left, but really trying to lean non-polarized, trying mm-hmm. to lean more towards uh, maybe what, uh, what, what you said. Um, yeah, Kate was talking about there are... Um, conservative Dharma teachers and yeah. practitioners, and, and you said we're not looking for a party per se, but for principles. Yeah. And just thoughts about you know, how uh, you know, words of, of, of insight or wisdom or advice to non-Buddhists dealing with non-Buddhists. You know, I have family members and work colleagues. And, you know, yeah, I'm not quite sure. that I, Now, I see about three or four topics of questions there. <laughs> Well, so maybe um, if you give a specific, I, I guess I'm interested in um, thoughts about how to bring Dharma into a, a secular context. I think other people can do that much better than I can, because <laughs> I come from. I mean, I'm wearing a robe as a monk. <laughs> you look I come fairly from religious. Dharma, yes. religious. Excuse me. You look fairly religious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and your name even gives you away. <laughs> yeah, so I, like, I, I come from a Buddhist religious background, and I don't really try to promote Buddhist relig- relig- religion, religiosity per se, but I look at the practice within the whole context of the Buddha Dharma. And my feeling is for the mindfulness movement, I say if People, I often think of a statement that the Buddha makes in a different context. He says, the Tathagata, that is the enlightened one, doesn't have the closed fist of a teacher. So the way I interpret this, if people want to take from the Buddha Dharma practices that are beneficial to themselves or that might be beneficial to others, and they're used and applied in a wholesome way, I say, fine, wonderful. Like if say the mindfulness is taken in the mindfulness-based stress reduction practices to help people, patients who are dealing with chronic pain conditions, with illnesses, then it's, you know, it's an excellent application. If mindfulness is being used, now there's cognitive psychotherapy. I think mindfulness is used in that, then fine. Mindfulness is being used in schools with children to help them become calmer, more concentrated. Again, it's a very worthy application. And so I think like all of those are good applications, but what I would say is that you know, the practice of mindfulness originally comes out of the Buddha Dharma in, as part of a path to liberation. And so while well, we... Other people might apply mindfulness in different spheres, dimensions of, of practice, but we should always remember, those of us who are Buddhists, that the fundamental purpose is to serve as a component or factor of that noble eightfold path, which is aimed at ultimate realization and liberation. One thing that um, the current president is particularly good at is creating anger and hatred and enemies and uh, hitting, kind of flaming the idea of the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. What can we do, just uh, engaging in a fight that make his supporters the others for us is just working his game. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. What can we do to reach out to the other and help them recognize that there is no them, there's only us? that there is really no them, yeah. there is no them, yeah, there's yeah. only us. That is an extremely you. important point. I mean, I don't have those skills of working on the ground and knowing how to reach out to those people, but I think you hit on the key point is to make, in fact, this is the, really the essential point, is to make people realize that creating these divisions and acting on the basis of these discriminating mind, this distinction between us and them, actions which are rooted in fear and the sense of clinging to privilege and power, that is 
going to work to the de- detriment of all of us. And so the way to really overcome the kind of crises and predicaments that we're facing is for people to recognize that the best way that each one of us can flourish is by helping other people to flourish in their own way. Thank you. How to go about that? You have to get people who are skilled. What kind of people would these be? Organizers? Mm. Yeah, there are people who work on the ground who do that kind of... So, uh, it's just about time to yeah. to go. Um, I want to thank you so much. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. And thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being such a... Uh, a committed, dedicated, um, inspiring uh, expression <laughs> of, of the Dharma. Mm-hmm. It, it's that's so. Uh, mm-hmm. You've inspired me mm-hmm. uh, for many years, and and many people in this room, and many people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we close with a, a short loving kindness. So, I thought we could do that and invite people to uh, just go inside for a moment and. In whatever way you're touched these days with your concern for the world, just letting that be the motivation for whatever wise response might come through you. First feeling your care. A very wholesome gift that you've been endowed with. And perhaps reflect on how you can make a difference in this world whether it's expressing your care for those close to you, or being involved in a cause that's dear to you, caring for the planet, which needs all of our care so much, Just how can you make a difference without taking it as a burden, but as a joyful responsibility, as a source of of real um, joy and contribution? and love. Knowing that it's contagious and activates that in others. May we express our caring and compassion and love skillfully. May we deepen our wisdom and understanding. May we see through our fears and narrowness and come to true liberation of the mind and heart. And may our coming here together, any good that comes from our sharing this time together, may it be 
shared and of benefit to all beings everywhere and this wonderful planet that we live on. May all beings know the highest happiness and peace. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ponte, thank, thank you so much, Kate. Have a great week and share your love well.